welcome to another riveting edition of the Dishcast. I am super psyched today because I have here an old friend and a wonderful human being who is also someone who specialized in understanding addiction and depression. Her name is Sally Sattel, and she's an addiction psychiatrist. She's a visiting fellow at AEI. She's also a visiting professor of psychiatry at Columbia. And she did a really interesting thing not so long ago, which was instead of like me writing about the opioid epidemic from a distance, she actually went and spent a year in 2018 in southeastern Ohio in a place called Ironton as a you were you were uh, you worked you worked as a psychiatrist there you were you were in the local clinic and and dealt with people and was a first-hand witness to the opioid epidemic something the dish has always been interested in um and i wanted to just tap a professional's brain about how this happened and and where we're going and what exactly we can do most successfully to try and change the dynamic that seems to be entrenching itself. But first, let me ask Sally a little bit about your background. Like, I always do this with guests, but where, where, where did you grow up and where were you, where, where were you born and grew up and, and, and what was that like? Oh, I grew up in Queens, New York, and I had a truly happy childhood. It's kind of the end of the Mad Men era. And, um, and I always thought I'd be an animal um, behaviorist. So I went to uh, college. I went to Cornell, studied biology, and I went to the University of Chicago to be an evolutionary biologist. And um, that didn't last too long. I actually, um, I don't know if we ever discussed this, Andrew, but I, I actually developed um, an infection that uh, required high-dose steroids. Mm. And um, This was while you were in Chicago? While I was in Chicago, when I first started, actually, uh, so the steroids are very effective, as they tend to be in arresting uh, acute inflammation. But um, <clears throat> either my doctor left me on too long, or I just was not clear to me now in retrospect with my medical background, but or I really did need the medication. But um, uh, as many people know, prednisone can cause uh, mental what we call mental status changes. Mm. And my mental status change was a severe depression with a form of what's called um, receptive aphasia. Now, most people have heard of expressive aphasia. That often accompanies strokes when a person can't really form, form words, can't form, they even know what they want to say, but they can't get it out. And that's beyond frustrating. But this was a receptive aphasia where you couldn't understand what people were saying to me. I, I remember, or reading, and I remember reading an ad um, for a... Um, a carpet carpet sale, and I th kept thinking, why would a, a a pet for a car? Why would why would a car need a pet? It just nothing made sense. People people asked me questions. I, I a carpet sale, and you thought a car and a pet. Yeah. Um, so what that this is prednisone. Yes, yes, um, yeah. There's a big literature on this wow. actually. Um, and in fact, when I became a, re a medical resident, I wrote about a child who um, was given steroids for, I think he had ulcerative colitis, and um, he uh, basically acquired a uh, behavioral disorder. I mean, he was then diagnosed as if he had oppositional disorder, ADHD, and it was really the steroids. But mm. so in my case, actually, mania is, is the mo one of the more common, you know, a sense of being 
really powerful and uh, hyper and really energetic and sleepless and grandiose. Yeah, that's been actually when I I have to go on it every now and again because my lungs seize up with asthma. And yeah, you feel kind of a little giddy. It's hard to sleep. Uh, you a little racy in your heart. Um, yeah. I didn't like it. I don't like the feeling of it at all. Um, but I'm happily it enabled me to breathe. So in, in the balance work. of things, it was fine. Yeah. How long were you on them? Well, a total of six weeks. And as you know, you cannot discontinue these abruptly because they shut down your adrenal glands. And if you stop them right away, you'll basically go and have a, a effectively Cushing syndrome. You won't be producing. So, so they had to be tapered slowly. But when I was experiencing the worst of it, so that was on 60 milligrams, and really I didn't start to feel better until they were down to 20. But it was a profound, profound depression, the kind, in fact, there used to be a term for it called autonomous depression, where you can't even imagine what can make you happy again. Mm. I mean, most people, when they get depressed, not all, but most, they can at least imagine what would relieve their misery. But this was where you couldn't even conceive of what would make you happy. And um, and you saw it go, I saw it going on forever, which in a way is a prescription for suicide, really, or, or hopelessness that you feel will never go away. And I had thought of killing myself if this didn't um, resolve. Um, basically, I just slept or cried all day. I remember walking around Hyde Park in a daze and uh, that feeling of anxiety. Yeah, like your organs were shifting um, in your body. It was really just horrific. And of course, I couldn't work. And thank goodness, they were so good to me at my in my department. They said, take time off. It's fine. Were you in London? No, it's with the Hi University of Chicago. So Hyde Park. Okay. Oh, yes. yes. Okay. Um, and... Um, and my doctor, after two weeks of this, my doctor explained, oh, it's the steroids. Well, thank you for warning me. <laughs> well, anyway, I'll just wrap this up by saying once that was that whole experience was over and it really was so it was so uh, such a such a d disturbing episode that I was even afraid to think about it in retrospect, that I had this magical sense that I'll get frozen back. Somehow I'll return to that state. But of course, that didn't happen. And I got past it and I finished my, you know, graduate work. But I that's when I decided, you know, there are people who go through these experiences and they can't blame it on some medication a doctor gave them. It's their own neurotransmitters, you know, revolting. And that's what a horrible, horrible thing to experience, to live, to, to be in the case and sometimes when it's. Um, takes up your whole life and yeah, so much I, of your... In some ways, I think it's it's worse than any incapacitating physical ailment because... I agree. I'd rather get a curable cancer than schizophrenia any yeah. day. Any yeah. day. And it, also because you, your mind can handle the physical illness, but when the mind itself is what is physically ill, there's really no escape from it. No, it can be torturous. And thank God we do have many good medications. They don't work as well. No, everyone knows they don't work as well. Nobody is talking magic bullets, although for various individuals, some drugs are really quite miraculous. And, um, you know, we can do better things with side effects. But um, it, it's, it's a, you know, it's a challenging, severe mental it has illness. Gotten is better, very challenging. Though. I mean, my, I have experience that my mother is long, mm -hmm. long running uh, both bipolar and uh, borderline personality disorders. And from my own experience, uh, the medications have gotten a lot better over the years. And she's pretty well managed at this point, um, uh, which is a relief. But obviously no magic cure. And she also had 
electroconvulsive therapy. Oh, that's very. I if I had a severe depression, I that that I didn't think was going to you know resolve anytime soon, I wouldn't hesitate to get ECT. It has electroconvulsive therapy. It has a terrible name, and of course, in the past, it wasn't done well, and there was memory loss significant that that stayed with someone, but um, it's much, much better. And now there's ambulatory ECT where people can get it in a sustained way as outpatients. They um, can walk around with it on their heads? Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, you come to it's a It's not exactly a ambulatory, not, right? No, but you come to a clinic and go home that okay, night. Yeah, okay, okay, good. I mean. You don't yeah. have to be an inpatient. And it's not the same oh, sort of Dr. Frankenstein No, no, the thing, voltage but... is like, no, really. I know it sounds, some people still cringe at it, but if it helps anyone out there, I would rush to get it. Yeah, if, it, it uh, helped my mom amazingly. It, it completely... I mean, this is in my childhood, but yes, it really was oh, effective. Even then. Well, that, that's yeah. good, and uh, and we're doing better, I think, at managing side effects, and and I think we're listening to patients. I hope more. I mean, you know, I hate to say it, but um, my profession is maybe like maybe like other specialties too, but you know, there's a kind of paternalistic streak. And sometimes that paternalism makes a lot of sense. You know, if you're hallucinating in the park and so paranoid that you won't come in and you're going to freeze to death. Well, then, yes, we have to um, benign paternalism, you know, take you to a safer place. But if you tell me that, you know, this medication worked at this dose and um, along with a little of, you know, a little of another medication that took the edge off, I'm willing to listen to you. And mm. I think most of my colleagues are now. But there was a time where we might not have been as sensitive to these kinds of things. Yeah. I mean, the the exciting thing that I can see in terms of depression, which obviously is at the core also of a lot of addiction issues, presumably, um, is uh, the psychedelic uh, options, which are beginning to be tested properly and examined. Um, ketamine seems to be an extraordinary breakthrough in terms of uh, finding a way to break these patterns of thought that mire you in these depressive States um, and psilocybin too seems to have uh, some seriously good effects on people with chronic depression. What, what's your take on on those things? I know that the ketamine. I'm not an expert in this, but um, I think I would also, as a if I were a patient, um, be interested in ketamine. Though I know there's some literature about the effect wearing off after mm. some time. So I, there may be a lot of individual variation. It's still relatively new, mm. so a lot Very of new. research. And and one, you know, takes it with some, um, there's some regularity. I mean, whereas with um, psilocybin, that's really just a one-time thing. And um, and I'm I think those developments are extremely extremely exciting. And um, I'm also glad to see that again so many of my colleagues do. Um, I even have to admit I'm a little embarrassed to say I think maybe ten or twelve years ago I I might have thought oh come on but you know I'm much let me, more. Let me get to the one of the things that you have written about which which is which affects people with depression a lot too, and with addiction is that obviously there are. Uh, genuine uh, psychiatric medications that can work. Uh, my mother, for example, was obsessed with, is this my fault? Am I not really, is this not a disease? Is this something that I've just gotten things out of perspective or I've, I've, I've encountered a really difficult part of my life? In her case, to begin with, postpartum depression, which is which is very common, but other people lose a job or have some life-changing event that really affects them. Um, at what point 
does the person have agency in these situations? At what point does the is the person able to say, I can, I, because it's obviously wrong to say, just snap out of it. That That's not something people with depression can do. On the other hand, you don't want to say you can do nothing and your will and agency is irrelevant. We just have these drugs. There's obviously some kind of balance between those two as, a, as you practice. So how, how do you recover that person's sense of agency and ability to affect their lives? You know, I th think of every, pretty much everyone as um, a combination of genetic loading and, um, and their, their psychology. Mm -hmm. And everything gets filtered by the psychology, you know, their environment, their sense of themselves, how other people react to them. And you have to you have to address all this on an individual basis. Mm -hmm. I remember seeing a, a woman who, um, she was in her 50s. She was a librarian. It, it's almost almost a cliche here. She was home in New Haven, taking care of her mother, never got married, and led a, a fairly, what others might think was a somewhat cramped life. Um, and um, And the mother died. And of course, I mean, these are such complicated phenomena, but there was, as is often the case, a combination of enormous relief, and especially in this lady's case, because she really was controlled in so many ways by her mom and, and the obligation, just taking care of her alone, let alone the psychological possession that she felt the mom had over her. But she missed her and terribly and felt dependent in some way. And I, multiply that by a hundred different refractions. It's very complicated. And... Um, and when she came in, she had come into an office, so she was she could mobilize herself, but she barely made eye contact. You know, what they call poverty, poverty of speech. She hardly could, you know, didn't say much. And um, I thought, oh my goodness, this this lady might really need shock therapy. And um, I saw her two days later, which is if you're lucky enough, like I, I've always been in situations, thank goodness, where I could see people as often as I wanted because I never had a standard therapy practice or worked for an HMO. And that's someone you might want to see a little more often. She didn't speak of suicide, but you never, she didn't speak of much, so who knew? And, and she was so much brighter. It was stunning. Now- In, um, two, in two days? In two days, which was just extremely, um, it, really surprised me. Now, I, I, I wish I had a good resolution to this, in other words, and say, then she was fine. Um, or then she, that night, everything unraveled and whatever. But the, my point is how differently people can present um, with even this, this kind of the slightest intervention in mm. a way. It wasn't even an active intervention. It was really talking to another person who was sympathetic. Um, now, would you say she had some or, or at least whatever her condition was, and it wasn't highly reactive to this encounter. It was. There are other people who were so depressed that I once worked when I was at Yale. So you think she recovered partly because she'd been listened to for the first time? I think time. that's definitely part of it. She may have been just the activation of leaving the house could have could have spurred mm. her in some way. It's hard to know. Um, um, she um, actually... Um, she kept one more appointment and then, you know, where, where her basically her status was intermediate and then she um, left. So, uh, you know, I really don't know what happened. So this isn't any kind of a, a clinical case study. It's just to say that it is it's stunning how people can. Um, it's hard to get a, a sense of a person in, in one visit. But that said, 
I I worked on funny. I worked on the unit on um, at Yale New Haven Hospital, which is the, right at the time that William Styron was hospitalized there, and um, and he wrote a, that's the experience he wrote about was on, on our unit, and um, and there there were there were folks who were just they were really like statues. I mean, they could not move. Um, they I mean. It, they actually had, and there's a fair amount of psychobiological research on this, almost changes in, in certain hormonal levels that would really come with you know, severe depression. This is a different species of depression than than what, you know, someone will say. With, like the stuff I'm feeling now because I've been in a year in lockdown and I, I can't, I don't seem to be able to get a vaccine and I'm just losing it. Which is not to say what you're experiencing isn't important or but powerful it can be recovered, as well. But it can be recovered but it's more, under your own steam to some extent. It's, it's more more, I, I think this is a good word. It's more reactive. We used to have, you know, we uh, psychiatric diagnosis changes every, it changed again in 2013 when the new DSM Diagnostic and Statistical Manual came out. Not that every diagnosis was, in fact, 99% of them really stayed intact, but a few were changed. But we had this term um, years, decades ago called reactive depression. It's not there anymore. But you know, there's there was what wisdom so to that. So postpartum depression would be reactive now, depression. No, or no? see, okay. well, that's fascinating. In some um, the postpartum, as you can imagine, with the hormonal upheavals mm-hmm. that, that has a real biological origin. Then again, there are women who are, frankly. Um, very overwhelmed by the responsibility, very ambivalent about being mothers, or you know maybe their husbands changed the whole dynamic, and and so there's a huge psychological dimension. How do you separate it out? Well, you don't. Certainly, it's not the same in everybody. That's for sure. And until you get to know someone, it's very hard to separate it out. Is addiction connected often to these depressive states? Is is it is is this seeking of 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 drugs or some kind of altered consciousness driven partly or mainly maybe mainly by depression i feel that um you know i've been a long been a critic of the um what's called the brain disease model of addiction which is a little different from saying the disease model because i think disease is is a very good meta- metaphor well, explain a little bit more about what you mean by that the, the disease the, the, the disease brain disease is a concept oh okay um because my mother was always told you know oh you mean addict we're talking about addiction now. yeah okay yeah, yeah. yeah um Oh, all right. What I was about to say, let me just get to the punchline and then I'll work back. I was going to say I find it most helpful to say think of addiction as a symptom. And so that's the bridge to what you said about depression, that it's uh, at its core a an effort to um, medicate some kind of some kind of emotional state that's unbearable. And it can be depression. It can be self-loathing. It could be. I mean, it could be more existential than mm-hmm. psychiatric. I, if I thought I, if a patient had a medication-responsive depression, I'd say, "No, take my drugs, not yours." You know, um, but uh, but the brain disease is a very common. Um, now, pretty much, it's it's dominated the rhetoric of of the field, and um, and I understand why. I mean, you want to make something as medical, you want to medicalize a behavior as much as you can because it destigmatizes. Sure, it. and and that's that's a good thing. How much you want to destigmatize a behavior versus the person is a mm-hmm. is a debate to be had, though. Um, the latter, no. The former, 
maybe. Mm-hmm. And no one stigmatizes it more than the patients themselves. Mm-hmm. But um, anyway, the idea, right, so it destigmatizes the ideas. There'd be more funding for research, more treatment. Um, it would really wrest it from the criminal justice domain and put it in the therapeutic one. So I, I really endorse all those goals. Um, the problem is it shortchanges the phenomenon, the condition, the behavior tremendously because, um, you know, I'm not going to debate with a neuroscientist um, <clears throat> about a brain scan. Of course, they're, they're altered when people are in an addicted state. Um, there's brilliant work showing how um, people undergoing PET scans or fMRIs, these are imaging techniques. Your brain is, is you know, lighting up um, while you're looking at, let's say you're a person in an early stage of recovery. This is all obviously um, ethically approved research, but you're in a stage where you were um, a drug user and you're shown photos or videos of people shooting up and your brain's going to light up Mine's not. Yours is um, because of the associations you have to it. And you, it might even start you craving. And that could be problematic. Um, that's so much of so much of uh, treatment of addiction is how to control your craving. But um, but so I'm not arguing with the, the dopamine and all the neurotransmitters and, and the um, circuitry that that's that's altered in the course of this. What bothers me is that brain disease, as I said, just flattens this this incredibly complicated experience and the incredibly complicated treatments to slice of brain tissue. And it's just um, my late um, collaborator, the brilliant Scott Lilienfeld, a psychologist. I mean, the the model that um, that we like to talk like to talk about this is as um, that's explanatory levels. Levels of analysis. Sure, you can talk about addiction at the level of the brain. It's it's legitimate. It's brilliant research, as I say. It's highly funded. Um, I would also argue that no treatment has emerged from it, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. And it and some might at some point. But there's the psychological level at which we can explain addiction. There's the sociological, the cultural, the environmental, and and all those levels are important. They're important. Um, you might say the emphasis on these various levels might be different between individuals. Mm-hmm. They might be different in the same individual over mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And um, and to talk about addiction as a brain disease immediately makes you think, oh, we need a medical cure. And yes, we have for opioids. Luckily, we do have some excellent medications, meth- um, methadone, buprenorphine, something called um, naltrexone. But, um, but those medications are... Um, they, they stabilize people, and that's that's huge. But once you're stabilized, which is to say, you're not craving, you 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 know you you can basically um, get through the day without using and be productive in other ways. Um, there's still so much, so much a person has to do to repair their lives, because when you think about it, now you've got if you've been addicted for a while, now you've got two levels of problem. You've you've got the level that drew you to that made drugs look. A, appealing to you in the first place. And I don't mean recreationally. That's a whole different thing. Um, I mean as a kind a of oblivion. Yeah. Oblivion. Yes. That's just a word that I know, and I there. like that word, but but it seems to me that that's not true. The different, different substances create different kinds of feelings. And presumably the feelings that you 
you're trying to gain will somehow make you feel better than what you're currently existing in some way or other. So I mean, this is one of the things that, that struck me about uh, epidemics such as, say, the crack epidemic in the 80s and 90s, primarily in the inner city, primarily African-Americans. Or, and I know heroin is coming back into those places pretty pretty strongly. But then the, 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 the sort of heartland of the opioid is a very different uh, sociological and demographic and psychological uh, is, is so these different drugs, drugs come and go in popularity depending upon, I suppose, sort of random things like maybe mass production of Oxycontin or stray things like the ability to, the, the, the way that substances become more concentrated because when they're made illegal, that's much more easier to transport and less likely to get caught. And those intense substances then can have much more addictive qualities and much more escapist qualities than others. So it's, it's very complicated. What I, what I, you've treated people both in Ironton and also in, in, the, in big cities. What's the difference? Is there well, a difference? The patients in um, here in D.C. and um, out in um, – well, I worked in a few clinics. One was in a, just a very, frankly, a scary neighborhood. I'd be a little nervous about going at, um, even during the day. It was in Anacostia. And then another out in um, near Florida, Trinidad, mm -hmm. the neighborhood, which actually during the day was fine. And then another one near, near um, uh, George – George Washington. So they got progressively less intimidating. But the patients were, um, uh, you know, it was, it was largely the same patients and the same task. And yes, heroin was overwhelmingly the problem in inner cities. Um, now, of course, fentanyl is uh, contaminating that and sending the overdose rate. I don't know that there are that many more um, heroin um, people addicted to heroin I think that's probably pretty flat, if not anything, maybe getting a little, although the pandemic did dis disrupt things. Anyway, the, but the point is that the overdoses are increasing because of fentanyl, which is about 50 times as potent as, as heroin. Now, my patients would occasionally use pills, and a lot of people, um, you know, benzos, like Xanax or Valium, clonazepam, this kind of thing, uh, would be used, occasionally cocaine. But um, but no one would say that their opioid career started with pills. That 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 would be unusual to find. Also, the average age in our clinic was fifty-seven. Um, in the inner city. Yeah. Wow. And um, but in, in Ironton, much younger. I mean, Ironton is in um, what's called North Central Appalachia, um, but very close to where Central Appalachia starts, and that's um, what most people think of. Um, and Central Appalachia is um, like West Virginia, southern, um, eastern Kentucky, and southwestern Virginia. And, um, and Ironton itself was part of what's called the tri-state area, where the Ohio River kind of made a division between Ironton, which was in Lawrence County, which is 60,000 people. Ironton has about 10,000. And for a year, I was the only psychiatrist there, um, which is 50% of all counties apparently do not have psychiatrists. And then there was Ashland, Kentucky. And then there was Huntington, West Virginia, which is pretty infamous. Um, one day in uh, August, I think it was 
2016, like 28 people overdosed. Um, not all, the majority of them did not die, but that was very striking. And I got to know the mayor there, who was excellent and uh, very effective and a wonderful man and very concerned. Anyway, but um, and it was all white and um, a lot of pill use. Although I, at, by the time I got there, moving on to uh, certainly heroin had moved in and um, and methamphetamine methamphetamine was really big. Right. Um, when you looked around you in Ironton and elsewhere, and when you compared them to the people you treated in D.C., were there any differences psychologically or socially? You know, I, this is one of the, uh, when people would always say to me, especially a month after I was there, what did you learn? And of course, I wanted to murder them because I'm <laughs> trying to figure it out. But uh, sort of one of the things I did learn, and I'm a little sheepish to admit, is that, you know, there was so much thinking about the, you know, the people, the defeated people in these defeated places that, you know, where the main industry left town and and uh, globalization and autom automation were taking their jobs. And there was the, 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 the deaths of despair narrative, which I which I do not dispute. Um, or the lives of despair narrative, the case in Deaton. Um, and I always distinguish that from what I call individual level addiction, which would be you or me. You know, if our lives were just, I mean, take any movie star. They appear to have everything. What's the problem? Well, there's a lot of problems. Um, Princesses even. Of course, yes. <laughs> the struggle um, is real. And, Yes, and and uh, it's probably one of the, it is the most human thing on earth, and depression you're talking about. Well, or, all kinds of mental struggle, but, right, yeah. right, right. Um, and 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 I had to ask myself, why didn't I think of the patients in inner city DC that way? I always it's kind of thought of addiction as just another of the inner city pathologies. You know, the fatherlessness and the. Um, out of wedlock births and the crime and the and the poverty and and the drugs, you know, I, I thought that saw the drugs as as part of that picture as opposed to a response to that picture, mm. and um, so I think the same those same principles apply. Despair. I mean, if 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 you live in a chaotic environment and you you do not have the personal resources to overcome those. Um, at some point, you recognize that you're screwed, that you're here forever, and obviously you're going to feel a certain amount of despair. But also one imagines the sense of not being socially validated or understood uh, uh, is, is a very powerful thing. I'm just fascinated by the, how the human mind responds to these, these desperate, these, these unending crises of, of meaning that, that these people are, that many people are, are trapped in. Well, that's the com sort of the communal addiction, where almost the community is 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 um, ill, as yeah. opposed to. And I've, um, you know, I referred to. I, I loved what Anthony Bourdain once said. I mean, that's a tra such a tragedy. The way he he was a heroin addict, and then he was uh, really deeply involved with crack. But during his show. Um, in 2014, he went out to Massachusetts, and the happy part of the show is when he went out to Cape Cod, where he went when he, I think he was 19, and he first learned how to cook and 
used a ton of drugs. But um, Cape Cod but, but is still as, the same. <laughs> but as nineteen-year-olds do, right? And then, um, and then he visited a small mill town in Massachusetts, and that was also one of the ground zeros of of the, the pill problem in Maine, the Upper Northeast. And um, and they went around the room, and they all, you know, a little bit of war story, war story sharing. And um, when it came to him, he he, you could see he was really struggling to find words to, to explain why he got involved with drugs. And he said, um, um, I'm paraphrasing a little bit. He said, "I don't know what it was, whether there was something inside me that was missing, um, but." And here I'm not really paraphrasing, but I don't think about it as a disease. I think about it as there was some dark, some dark genie inside me that I hesitate to call a disease. Hmm. And so I, I just thought that was perfect. And hmm. so, and so I thought about his situation as a, a dark genie type of a, mm-hmm. addiction. And read any memoir. Any addiction memoir will give you enormous insight. There the theme happens to be, I find, the most common theme is often self-loathing. And I don't know if that correlates with the capacity to write brilliant memoirs as well. But So there may be some correlation there. But but that seems to be the, the, the overriding deficit in so many people who write memoirs about being addicted. That's dark genie. When I think of dark horizon uh, addiction with the people, and that's where you get epidemics, when you have communities. Huh. So the dark genie is some sort of personal level of, of, of pain that might have been maybe bad, awful childhood. Uh, it does seem that addiction is correlated quite strongly with, with bad childhoods, with, with the lack of stability and security in your childhood years. Um, and of course, that would, that the same pathology is a family breakdown and is ha- has is happening around the country especially in these in these uh, deaths of despair areas as they have happened as has happened in the inner city um, for African Americans when it happens on a population basis now if mm. you catch it early so to speak like one one um, woman I entered well she, young, I mean, 25, she said, oh, we're all third, fourth generation addicts. That's her word. Um, and uh, But when her grandfather, or her great-grandfather, I think in this case, lost his job at the mill, as it, well, in this case, it was a foundry, but um, you know what? You could have stepped in with another job, and everything would have been fine. It's when it gets several generations in, and that's where what you're referring to as a technical name, adverse childhood experiences. But yeah, when the parents um, aren't, uh, when the parents aren't present, when there's nobody there to even make sure you went to school or to praise you when you did good work and to encourage you that you could do better work, uh, when there's no one there to to um, kind of save you from your cousin who's abusing you or to even respond when you tell them it happened. I mean, you can imagine all these these kinds of insults that happen to young kids that just can destroy their capacity to form relationships and trust and have any sense of self. And, um, and so they're set up for addiction. But, uh, but they've got, those people have a double whammy, as it were, you know, they, they've got poor upbringing, but that poor upbringing in, in a play, you know, in a, in a geographic area, um, that went through some sort of, I guess you could say, economic trauma. Initially, it was pure 
horizon problem. We, we just don't see a way a way to make a living and, and to survive. And then that has an erosive um, effect on the family and there's that kind of I social about, and cultural unraveling. I think about the policy debates in the 90s when we were debating, people were debating free trade. Give a simple example where the economists came in and told us we'll all get better off and everybody can understand the principles of this. You know, we produce what we most efficiently can and, and we import things that can be done more efficiently because they have lower wages elsewhere. There was never a conversation at the time that I recall about what this would do to the culture and the psychology of regions of the society and of the country, which were particularly going to be wiped out by the 2001 entrance of China into the WTO. Those areas, of course, uh, were pummeled, uh, and they'd already been pummeled, but this was a, a kind of devastating blow. And when and when these towns or cities, which were really created entirely around the industries that they were, which is different in America than, than Europe, where towns have existed for hundreds and hundreds of years. My hometown went back to the Middle Ages. Here, you know, there's a big company set up and everybody moved there like in the 40s or 50s. Uh, and they're now living with almost, a, you know, more than half a century of pointlessness in terms of why they're there. Uh, uh, and, and, and so... When you look, when you when you talk to the individuals, though, is there a, do they say very similar things? Do they have the same affect, or are they very varied? Well, there's a lot of variability. Um, first, you from a demographic standpoint, you know, there's a real hollowing out in a place like Ireton, and I'm sure many others, where um, the, even though the school systems are quite um, bad, in fact, I think they got a Lawrence County got a C rating, or was it even a G rating, from the Department of Education in Ohio when I was there. Um, but there are talented kids, and um, and there is, you know, a bit of a middle class, and these kids leave. So you're often left with a an aging population and a um, kind of a devastated population with a, with a pretty thin level of of, of middle class. Um, the thing with Ironton is it wasn't like Janesville where GM came in and it was great and then GM left and it, the bottom fell out. I mean, this was a place that was, um, some people say it was the biggest or certainly one of the biggest producers of what's called pig iron, which is a um, just a unrefined form of ore um, since before the Civil War. And it had um, it, it was a very very vibrant place up until I guess up until World World War um, Two. In that every time there was um, a war, there needed to be iron and steel, and this place would be humming. And um, it really wasn't until the late '60s there wasn't one industry uh, in terms of one company, so to speak, um, and, and the iron that they. Um, uh, they produced, um, you know, was um, important in the automotive factories and, and that industry. But in around the 60s, Germany and Japan started making cars, and that, I think, realigned the whole mm -hmm. automotive industry. And the first companies started to leave in 68, but it kind of wasn't felt until 1980. And that's, in fact, when Ironton went into a, I think, receivership or went bankrupt. And um, 
it's it's recovered a bit since then. But, you know, people have a, the, the ones who were left really have a sense of pride and talk with great nostalgia about what it was like for their parents. And um, um, but doesn't that make it worse? You're aware of how great it once was. You look around you. It's obviously not like that. That's psychologically always going to be hard if you're living in a place that you miss, uh, but you're reminded of every day. Well, that's true, but I, I, it is true. But I also think for some of them, it really helped um, with a sense of roots and belonging. But mm-hmm. were there uh, any I, class I, distinctions between the opioid addiction? W- w- was it mainly poor people? Was it was it was it also through the through? The, well, I worked in a public clinic, so I don't right. know where the other people went. Um, but it is, it is, you know, um, the it's and younger thirty, like thirty percent of below poverty. I mean, it is a, you know, it it is not mm-hmm. a healthy place, mm-hmm. and it physically isn't healthy. It's one of the worst health ratings in in um, in Ohio. I'm sorry, what was your last question? Um, I was talking about the class. Uh, you you just saw. You just saw the, the, oh, the all, poorest. All blue, blue collar, right? Um, and a lot of people work. I mean, um, they, they may work under the, you know, table, so to speak. They don't pay taxes in a, um, but they're working. I mean, when you're just because you use drugs, I mean, the, the sense is that you're nodding out all day, and you might be for, for part of your, um, for part of the time. But you know, a lot of people do work, and what was a little odd to me is that odd and encouraging and odd and at the same time is that they um, there was um, a new industrial park that was um, built over about 20 years but it, it, it had you know caterpillar and you know outlets from some you know major companies and they were desperate to hire and people would come and of course give a urine sample and of course there'd be drugs in it and so they had they had a problem hiring people because of that yeah they had a problem hiring people because of that but it, what, what I think about is well you got yourself together you got you, you filled out the application you got that far why couldn't you just control you you know what what's that about and that was actually um, one of the projects that started when I got there it just took some took quite a while to get off the ground. So I wish I had more of a report uh, on that. I mean, the, the point was to, to, to basically, uh, of this clinic I was working in, one, one of the points um, with this new program that, that was up and was starting to get up and running, was to make these folks, you know, more employable because, you know, so many people have skills. I mean, to go to the methadone clinic, my God, people know how to do stuff. You know, they don't, I don't know how to do anything. They know how to paint houses. They know how to fix things. They know how to do plumbing. They, they, people have gone in and out of the drug problem where they've had reasonable careers. Um, uh, again, maybe not white collar careers, but you know, where they're the good kind in some ways where they're making things and, 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 and heroin, fixing things. Heroin at a sort of manageable level. <laughs> it's like, uh, people do live, can live quite long with small-scale heroin addiction and be quite predict- productive. At least heroin uh, some is, people did. If, if you get if you got pharmaceutical grade heroin, and you could in 1898 when Bayer started mm-hmm. selling it in this country, um, you probably would suffer constipation. Yeah. That might be about it. Yeah, what I think people forget, and I, I wrote about this in that piece that I did, is that opium uh, has been around in this country for a very long time, was hugely popular in the 19th century. It was easy, as easy to get 
opium from your local pharmacy in the 1890s as it was to get cigarettes in America in the 1970s. Easier, much easier. You, you just walk <laughs> oh, in easier and, than today. That's easier, okay. easier than today, yeah. Uh, and, and people used it as a, you know, they used it a bit like an Advil. I mean, they used it for pain relief. They used it, and that's the other thing that happens in these working class communities is that there's a huge amount of physical labor that leads to pain, physical pain and agony. Um, you saw a huge burst in, in use of opium in the late 19th century. And you saw it in England in the early part of the 19th century because of this mass social dislocation that people experienced. They were in new environments. In, in the case of early 19th century in England, it was this mass industrialization with which most people who were plucked out of rural villages and were now dealing with this used this as a way to just sort of well, an oblivion to, to deal with not just the physical pain, but the psychological pressures of grappling with a whole new set of challenges in the world. And, you know, it would be given to babies to stop them crying. Um, it, was, it was quite common. Now, of course, you know, and no one really died of it because it couldn't, opium could only get so strong before you fell asleep. And, and it certainly wasn't strong enough like, God help us, fentanyl or morphine or all the other adaptations that emerged in the 20th century. So it was kind of a manageable drug back then. Um, still not the best. I mean, there was all sorts of anecdotes of you could, you could take a train from London to the, to the coast of East Anglia and you'd go through all these fields they told, where, where farm workers were literally nodding off over their forks and in their, in, with their machinery. People passed out in the fields constantly. And of course, in the Civil War, there was this massive production of opium. The both sides were growing, were, were cultivating poppy fields all over the place because the war injuries were so unbelievably awful that the and the only anesthetic was opium. They had no other ways of dealing with battlefield trauma. And then you get a wave afterwards of grief of people handling the psychological consequences of that war and the loss of so many of the men in these families and places uh, in a time when the men in those families were much more important for the family survival than they are today. Um, in some ways, is it, isn't it sort of in some way true that, that modern society has created a need for these oblivions, that, that we're not supposed to live like this as human beings? They're not supposed to live in these in these worlds where meaning has disappeared, where your local communities don't really operate the way they used to, uh, that we're all geared towards improvement of the standard of living or GDP and, none of, and nothing is really catered specifically to the human needs of, of a species that was never evolved in these constructs, never evolved in this kind of... Uh, and, and is, here's a question I've always been fascinated by. Do you think depression and addiction has been eternal. I mean, obviously, to some extent, it's always been here among humans. But I, I sort of, I wouldn't, I and mean, we don't know, of course, but I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if the incidence was much lower in the, in the past. Well, it depends on how far distant you go. I mean, there are features of depression that would not be uh, not selected for in an evolutionary. Obviously, if you've lost your interest in having sex, you know, if you can't be productive, you're going to be um, probably ostracized and not, and if you don't reproduce, obviously the, the genes aren't, uh, don't have a great future. Um, so, But uh, also when we were hunter-gatherers for 195,000 years, 
we had inbuilt communities. We had constant socialization. We had easy purposes. We had a religion that people didn't really question very much. Uh, they had more leisure. They were working less hard. It's conceivable they were much less depressed, part because they didn't have time to get That's depressed. Right. I think there's <laughs> so just just getting food in your belly. People think of their thought of their lives in philosophical ways. I'm not meeting my goals. Your goals is subsistence. Um, so is this in some ways uh, are these emergence of these drugs really uh, medication for modernity? Let's put it that way. I think that they. I think that. They, Listen, I think I always think of this in terms of supply and demand, and and that demand, when the demand is to change one's consciousness in a way that helps one cope, even if it ends up being self-destructive, then there will always be alcohol or heroin or cocaine. And I mean, you alluded to this, you know, the progression over the years in terms of um, uh, sort of epidemiologically, we tend to go from stimulants to depressants to stimulants and back to depressants. Mm. Um, and uh, and now we've kind of done it, you know, in a sense. Um, I mean, fentanyl is still here, but methamphetamine, the stimulants are are back. And, um, and uh, you know, I used to think that, um, in fact, there's a whole psychoanalytic literature on this, that people choose their drugs based on the kind of internal state they want to achieve. And I do think there's still, there is something to that when there's a choice. But sometimes when there isn't a choice, we'll use anything because the point is just to have a different inner state. And so you might think, well, if people were essentially um, tailoring their, if, if heroin was meeting a certain kind of psychological need, then, then why would they substitute it with Method, meth, excuse me, methamphetamine. That's just because. Uh, well, first off, people do still. I mean, when you look sadly at the toxicology reports of people who've overdosed, you rarely find one drug in there. So, uh, and street pharmaco pe people are very good street psychopharmacologists. They, um, when they can get access, they combine things and. Yeah, I have ways a friend who was a heroin addict, and he was telling me. Um Oh, oh, one time when he was with a partner who he'd had a lot of heroin with and the partner suddenly started to nod out. I mean, just thought he was dying. So what did he have at hand? Crack. And crack got him, <laughs> saved him from death. Uh, and I was like, well, luckily you had both on hand. But And that's, of course, but now we have Narcan and we have these things that can snap people out of these, these, these overdoses. Um, but what's striking to me when you snap people out of these overdoses in general, I've, I've heard many anecdotes like this, is the addict is fear. Well, you're not supposed to use that word, the addict, but the person who has, um, you know, is passing out is incredibly angry that you saved their life. Uh, they were having a great time. There's something obviously in heroin, specifically, probably more than any of the others, that really does give, I mean, you read the literature of it in the past, it really does seem to be a place of true serenity and happiness that humans rarely, rarely are able to, to, to meet in their lives. And to have that constantly available to you. I mean, you, you read the addiction of opium in the 19th century, and you can see why this was so appealing, or how the Brits could, could get an entire population addicted to it. Uh, I'm talking about the opium wars, obviously, yeah, no, in China. Um, I'll just add very clinically that, that um, one of the reasons uh, people are so irate when they're um, rescued is often because um, they come out of it too quickly. And ER people are getting, they've gotten better, I think, at a, more of a slow um, 
to the extent that you can. You don't certainly you have to reverse the respiratory suppression. I mean, but you don't have to you have to get it to some threshold. You don't have to like get the person wide awake right away because that is very physiologically it's it's very disruptive. Well, they're very pissed too because they're almost certainly immediately well, then put in jail. That. And then there's that. Where they yes. won't be able to get any of this at all. And so there's that too. But well, I want to know, I'm just obsessed and fascinated by the, 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 you know, is in some ways clearly the lives that they're living are just unbearable, right? And that's why they're doing these things even at the risk uh, to their own lives. Um Yes, but the good, I mean, you can think of story. I mean, one of the most dramatic examples, it's been told a lot now. I used, used to fascinate people with it. So now it's, it's, it's been, uh, my thunder has been stolen a bit, but it's still a great um, story of the, of, you know, the Vietnam veterans. Um, and you're probably familiar with that. No, where well, there was 1971 in Southeast Asia. Um, you couldn't get better heroin. Um, even opium, and um, and uh, up to depending on who you read, between fifteen and you know thirty percent of Americans. There was a lot of marijuana used too, but were uh, addicted, not just using, but addicted to um, the supply overseas. And um, and so Richard Nixon devised a program along with a psychiatrist who's. A wonderful psychiatrist who lives in Towson, Maryland, named Jerry Jaffe, Jerome Jaffe, considered the the therapist analyst. Actually, that's what he was sort of called. Um, but he devised this program called, um, brilliantly named Operation Golden Flow. And what that meant was you, you're not leaving Vietnam. And remember, people were there for pretty much a year, so people knew when they were leaving. Well, you're not leaving until you pee in this cup, and there's nothing in it. Um, and uh, that got the attention of these mostly men uh, very quickly. Uh, most of them were able to leave. You know, they cleaned up their, you know, they stopped using. There were, there were services on site that helped them detox if they needed it. The vast majority left. And the vast majority once back in the United States. And that's what it concerned Nixon so much is that they'll come back and, it, you know, inner cities will completely deteriorate because they'll bring their habits with them. There was already heroin use in the cities. but And um, and then of those who were back and followed by um, oh, Robbins, Lee Robbins at uh, Washington University, which followed them for about three years, very few of them became uh, addicted again. Right. And the ones who um, did develop, who did become re-addicted were those who had problems before they had been uh, drafted. And that's, I think you could teach the whole story of addiction in mm -hmm. a way is, is in there mm -hmm. um, because uh, it shows how for all the brain scans, you know, you can conjure up. The point is when there was an incentive offered to people or, or a, a big stick, which is you're not leaving until um, there may be brain changes. Well, there are brain changes in addiction, but they're not the kind that render you unresponsive to uh, sanctions and incentives. And so most were able to respond to that. When they came home, they had um, the, they, they didn't have to be in, at war anymore, <laughs> which is, a, you know, for most of these guys was um, pretty much 
a story of terror, boredom and boredom and boredom interrupted by terror. So you can imagine that opioids had an effect there, both for boredom. They're very good for boredom. That's a big part of treatment is helping people avoid boredom. And it's very good for terror Um, and any kind of post-traumatic syndrome you might develop. And when they came back, so those needs weren't there. The wife had some expectation. Honey, you're getting a job. Um, the availability wasn't there. The drugs that did exist, heroin was much weaker um, b- back then. And uh, the cues weren't there. Literally, the, the Pavlovian cues uh, of associated with use weren't there. And so it, it made it... Um, quite easy for so many of these men to resume And what this gets at is that there is a kind of model in a lot of people's heads that there's something in the chemicals of these drugs that automatically affects chemicals and keeps you hooked in that way. And that is very common. I mean, that's that, and one of the things that's been frustrating to me about the opioid uh, epidemic is that is that precisely that argument has been made and therefore the entire quote unquote blame has been shifted towards the manufacturers of these drugs which were which you had one hit of them and you were cooked for life that is too simplistic i mean there is no question to me that the drug manufacturers were incredibly irresponsible with this and and there was so little management and monitoring and that all of the criticisms of of sackler and uh, i think are completely legitimate but insofar as they take our attention away from the fundamental unhappiness and misery of people, which this is, uh, which this is helping them survive, uh, then it's then it's then it's uh, it's a wrong direction to go into, and it's a misunderstanding of what what drugs really are. That I agree uh, completely. I mean, a, a drug is um, a drug has to be a drug that one gets, let's say, in trouble with, just has to be seen in a larger. A larger context, and and as a psychiatrist, you know, as a medical person, uh, my context is just one part of it, and I, I uh, again, I think we're getting a little bit more humble about that. But for the longest time, when I was in, um, uh, again, when I had a traditional academic, you know, career, one of my projects was um, trying to develop. I don't mean in the lab. I'm not a I'm not a drug developer, but trying to um, use various um, medications in people who were um, using uh, crack. This was in West Haven, Connecticut. Um, basically, trying to find an anti-crack uh, medication. That was well. Let's just say it's been three decades. Nothing has. Um, nothing has materialized yet. I mean, you'll read about things. Um, in fact, I just read. There was just something in the news. The response rate is, is so low. It's, it's frankly laughable. Um, but, but the larger point is that they really thought there might be a magic bullet, mm. which is, again, if you – and one of my theories is that so many of the people who do addiction – excuse me, do research in addiction and never really treated patients. I mean, they're brilliant people. They're largely in the lab. And I don't think um, I don't think they have very visceral sense of of really what the phenomenon well, because is. Because we're so smart now, we have so much ability to understand things, and we have the ability to. I mean, if you take this current epidemic, this pandemic, uh, you know, what saved us in the end were these vaccines, which are incredibly effective, that were amazingly manufactured and devised very early in the epidemic, and just it's mainly been a problem of production and distribution and testing. 
Um, but we're so used to these technocratic solutions that we, we're not even thinking about the human solutions and the human dynamics here. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about meth because uh, uh, for me personally, my own life, I've seen this kill, destroy so many people in my own environment. Um, if you're a gay man in America, this is a hor horrible epidemic um, that is, is truly destroying people. Never talked about because no one's – certainly the gay groups are uninterested because it means airing what some think is dirty laundry. But um, I've seen people in this case completely unable to get out of that drug. It seems a very, very potent chemical thing to put in people's brains. And it seems I've never, I've never witnessed someone recover from it. Well, they can. That, that's for but sure. And I, I hate to say it, and I'm here thinking of my, my friend, Carl Hart, who's even done, uh, I'm sure you're, you've heard of him lately. He's been in the news a lot. He has this book called Drug Use for Grownups. It's controversial, but I think it does make some good points, uh, which is the one you were making before, which is that these drugs have to be seen in context. Mm -hmm. And he goes out of his way <laughs> to say it's drug use for grownups, meaning it's drug use for people who can control their impulses who um, can delay gratification and who, who can soothe themselves. People, the problem is that it's people with those deficits that are actually drawn to drugs. Mm. So in a way, if we, I'm not, not going to get on a soapbox for legalization. I don't think that's a good idea. But, um, but if we were to make drugs more, if we liberalized the regime, you would probably see more responsible use because those are the people who were deterred because it was illegal. Right. And they have those kinds of, of uh, internal you know, controls and they have a larger life. They have something to lose. Um, so Deep down, I think. I mean, it's interesting to see the use of meth among gay men and then see the use of meth among, say, truck drivers. Yeah. Meth is a working person's drug. It is. <laughs> it is, which is – and it keeps people – again, boredom on these incredibly long truck rides um, and keeps you also awake so you're able to be yeah, more productive. And in, um, there's a book called Methland, which is wonderful. It's really the dreamland of methamphetamine, and it takes place in Old Wine, Iowa, with the uh, Purdue plant, the other Purdue, <laughs> the chicken plants, and how people staying awake for that. And also those some of those so agribusiness has really changed the environment there and led to some of the same kinds of despair that we see in Appalachia. And, and, and so methamphetamine was the drug. There's a lot of regional variation. Mm. But that, was, that came out of a similar yes. crisis socially. With, with gay men, it was interesting how uh, it's associated – with sex, primarily. Yeah. It's a sex, it's a, it's a drug used for what's called chemsex, which is people can stay up all night long, two days running, and all their inhibitions disappear. So those who particularly have internalized self-loathing, sexual inhibition, a sense of disgust at who they are, uh, and this drug enables them to, to feel confident, self-empowered, and also have intense sexual experiences that become things that the only become increasingly the high point of their lives, and it becomes very hard to think of a future without any of those high points so happening. So the sex is more addicting than the drug. Well, the combination is. So the truth is that afterwards they're not really interested in sex without it, because it mm -hmm. it, it creates mm -hmm. a whole different 
I mean, I I've, I did it once, like 20, 20 years ago, by mistake, actually, because I thought it was cocaine. And I found out very quickly it wasn't. I didn't like it at all because I'm, again, I'm, I'm a, I need downers. I really need downers. And, um, you know, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about marijuana because that, there we are engaged in a really large scale shift in terms of consumption of this drug. I mean, it's, 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 it's gone up massively, partly because of legalization, although we never really had solid measurements of how many people were using it before. Um, I mean, probably, I think there's, there's in increasing agreement that, that, that prohibiting it uh, and stigmatizing it was counterproductive. Um, at the same time, uh, uh, you know, I worry. I, 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 I found I found in my brain uh, for a very long time an inability to turn it off, uh, uh, you know, insomnia, anxiety, uh, the stress really of a modern life. And I was handling all sorts of stress as I went along. Um, this allowed me accidentally, I didn't even, it, it allowed, I only started smoking when I was 36. It enabled me to sleep for the first time without complication, which is a huge go yeah, to get to sleep. sleep. Is everything. Huge, huge advantage to me. Yep. It was also at the time, because of the medications, an immense, immense aid in combating the nausea that I was experiencing. So I had I had obvious medical issues to deal with. And now not so much. Now for me it is it is entirely like a glass of wine at night. It's it's entirely about unwinding a little bit. Um at the same time, I'm aware that it's it's damaging me. I mean, it is. It, it's going to hurt my lungs, and, and I shouldn't smoke it. Probably, I know that. Um, it's definitely affects your memory, your ability to recall things, um, uh, and you know, I I think it's a trade off. It is a trade off. Do do I want to continue to be <laughs> incapable of sleeping, or on edge, or overwhelmed at times by the kind of conflicting pressures and being in the public eye now, especially in the arena of political debate, is, I think, harder psychologically than it has ever been. Social media in particular has created these essentially large, amorphous, anonymous mobs that uh, are able to torment, persecute, and destroy people. And to feel them behind you or trying to get you uh, requires a huge amount of equanimity <laughs> in not going under. Um, how do you think social media in particular has impacted our mental health? I was going to say something about marijuana. Oh, say something about marijuana too. Because <laughs> I, I mean. think you did give a, a very good um, portrait of someone who's, you know, trying to decide how to use it, when to use it, if to use it, if to continue using it. Um, as far as on a national level, obviously, the, the natural experiment has begun. And luckily, uh, you know, research is underway. I would say that the two things that um, there are many dimensions to this, but the two things that strike me are um, the extent to which it may, um, in young people who are already predisposed to psychotic illnesses, bring that on if sooner. you're under 18. So you really have to. That's you have, something to be. If you have schizophrenia in your family yes. or anything like that. That's a, that's a pretty rare uh, One percent of people are schizophrenic. Wow. Have schizophrenia, yeah. Um, and mean fully fledged or just potential no, schizophrenia? No, no, no. Yeah. One percent of Americans? One percent. Wow. Um, well, there's a lot of what's called downward drift, um, which is, um, which is to say, yeah, that's just a 
it's a sociological term for people who you know cannot function that well in the you know the more pr- productive echelons of society and if you're that ill and not getting good care mm-hmm. you will drift down to places that we are not going to run into these folks every day of course except the homeless on the streets yes and jails about 30% of um these you know Rikers or Cook County in Chicago or LA County jail they're the biggest psychiatric facilities in their state it's I and mean, this is something you've also talked about we uh, we got rid of the idea that people can be institutionalized and use that horrible word because obviously these places for treatment for medical for mental illness did have stigmas attached to them the loony bin as we we told it when my mother was actually taken to a mental institution i remember very vividly as a child going in there and feeling incredibly freaked out yeah. uh there were guards there was you know everyone was in these white coats and and uh and every now and again you see someone really uh in distress uh and my mother was in the middle of it and as a little boy it was you know quite traumatizing to see that on the other hand when i see people who are so obviously mentally unwell on the streets who can't they're, they're in no position to help themselves at this point uh, or, as you say, we've basically re- rebuilt these uh, institutions as jails where there isn't much medical treatment, which is because they've been caught in crimes or in some kind of antisocial behavior. Um, that's even worse, isn't it? I mean, they're not there to be helped. They're there to be punished in, in so many ways. Yeah. Um, do you think if we were to reintroduce... Uh, what they used to say. I mean, was the word they used to condemn? Was that what, they, what would they say? When someone came along to carry oh, you away, commit, commit is what yeah. I mean. Commit. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, commit people. Uh, and you have sort of nightmare stories uh, around that. We remember in the royal family. Seems to be in royal families. The Kennedys, I think, had one a person put into one of these institutions. Uh, Rosemary, that, she was lobotomized. Yes. She was actually. Um, well, initially she was mentally, uh, the term at the time, mentally retarded. And then she may have developed a schizophrenia. Oh, the way they yeah. treated people no, was, was just horrible. Abhorrent. But is it obviously the way that mentally ill people are now just put in these nightmarish jails is also unbelievably cruel? Uh, can we, could we make an argument again for attempting to create uh, places that were more safe, more productive of, of mental recovery? than jails? I mean, is this oh, possible? Gosh, yeah. There are wonderful models. I mean, and some, and frankly, some cities are doing much better than others. Um, maybe the political will will finally be there. I mean, you know, of course, in well, 1963, when President Kennedy's was the last um, bill he signed before he was shot, was the Community Mental Health Centers Act. And the idea, and that deinstitutionalization has already, already started the end of the 50s with Thorazine and and plus all the horrible exposés of, of The Shame of the States and others and Titica Follies was around then. Um, but we never made an, we never made a community setting that could really accommodate people uh, with the severe illnesses. Um, now we know how to do that. Um, the idea of, of a, an asylum, which the term itself in Greek is a lovely word. It means protection and refuge and this kind of thing. Um, you want to have that for the most severe. So 
the first point is if we were to have new asylums, um, they would be much more benign. They would have to be benign. I mean, they would have to have so much oversight as to be benign. But hopefully they'd be very fairly sparsely um, inhabited because we'd have so much better uh, a, a, a net with a, so much of a tighter mesh than we have now. I mean, if you're picked up on the street, and we've also heard so much about police shootings of people with, I think one in four police shootings, um, I want to say fatal, I can check this, but are of people with severe mental illnesses. Yeah, that's, it's, it's, a, it's and, a real phenomenon. Of course, these cops aren't trained right? so to deal with those so people, yet cops are required. Start- yeah. So that's one place to go. And there are there are various models. I mean, listen, if, if someone is psychotic and wielding a knife or a gun, you can't send a social worker. Um, but th- those are not the most certainly the relatively rare cases. And there are many others that can be um, dealt with. And there are already some excellent models out there for that. Um, well, what's the critical legal change you would need? You'd have to... You'd... Oh, done. It exists. Okay. Uh, now, that's a state by state. Mental health law has always been state okay. by state. Maryland happens to be one of the worst. Hmm. Um, uh, it's it, Some have a threshold of, sort of imminent danger to self or others. And if that if your state had that, then you could be literally running around the street naked, screaming, um, and, oh, sorry, we can't... <laughs> You know, commit you to a mental hospital, but we could bring you to, you know, to jail. Um, but if if we had a system that was was streamlined, where you know, if it, let's say you were in jail, let's and uh, but you're ready to get out, well, they can't just say go to this clinic. You need somebody to bring you there, and not in a month, but in a day. And um, here's your medication. We're going to make sure that. Uh, the side effects aren't too bad, that you're taking it, that you're busy during the day, um, that you have, I mean, some people who are severely mentally ill with schizophrenia, um, you know, they, they need to limit their social, they're easily overwhelmed. They might not want that much contact, but there's a clubhouse model where um, people can, at least they're they're occupied and and some folks actually, you know, have some jobs and supported workshops and they feel useful and they're, and they're busy. Also, and, and there are some with addiction issues, which... There's uh, a lot of comorbidity, right? Yes, yeah. but but also if, if for example, you're, you're, you're mentally unwell and using heroin, there are some places now that will provide you with heroin safely. Uh, as they also treat you uh, for your mental illness. Well, in, in Vancouver, I oh, think, and okay. I think, Vancouver, yeah. and I think Seattle, uh, there's an experiment there. There are a few experiments going on around the country. Oh, there. Well, there may be experiments. I'm not, heroin maintenance. Well, that's what it's called. Heroin. Yeah. Heroin. Heroin maintenance or heroin. Well, the goal treatment. is to also slowly but, yeah. get them onto methadone and then slowly wean people off. Um, yeah, but to do it in situ, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and communities where they have rooms for people to, who are in desperate straits to just stay in there are not going to be uh, criminalized, and but will be given psychological support. Right, uh, right. We have some sort of some kind of of, of human and, and and institutional, but institutional again in, in the most healthy way, um, net around folks because there's so much. I mean, it's such a cliche, but it's so true. So much. So much falling through the cracks, and um, and to be and again, I do see this happening. Sometimes I think sometimes it goes a little overboard, um, where you're trying to you know accommodate the phrases, meet people where they're 
you know, um, at. Sometimes I think they're meeting them where they're at and leaving them there, which worries me a little too mm-hmm. much. I think sometimes you to the attempt uh, is to is to find them where they are, deal with them, but to slowly right. help them. And I think that's 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 constructive. Um, and then it's hard when the person doesn't want to move mm-hmm. forward. That's I'm not saying that's easy, and it's a case by case basis. But but um, you know, there's a debate in the field. You know, essentially how. Um, well, when do you push and how do you push and who does the best pushing? Is it, Maybe it's not a professional sometimes. The last year or so in this pandemic, the shutdowns, the lockdowns, the isolation, the, the way in which society has been conducting a huge experiment on how people can live without other people, essentially. Um, I I know just for myself and, and for other people, it's, it has been really tough. It's been tough to be without, especially if you, especially if you live alone, or if you uh, you previously had some addiction issues, or if you have mental health uh, underlying difficulties. This suspension of reality uh, for so long, and as well as also, of course, the economic stresses and your job not being available and all the rest of it. This has to have been an incredible stress test for American mental health, right? I mean, we, we, we talk constantly about the dangers of getting COVID, and we haven't, I don't think, equally talked about the, the cost of the human psychological, spiritual cost of this dramatic atomization and, and suspension of our social networks. That's interesting. Uh, maybe I'm getting a, you know, different. Uh, I'm a different uh, email listservs than you are, um, because I see I see that discussed actually quite a bit. And I'm not being okay. I'm not being no, facetious I though. No. I do get more mental health related things than you do probably, um, but um, and and very very worrisome statistics. Um, you know, gosh, you know, up to a fourth of people with now. Um, I, I, you know, I talking in a fairly vague way here because one always has to think of, you know, how much of this again is that species of what what I still want to call reactive depression. Mm-hmm. You're not going to find that in the textbook anymore, mm-hmm. but it's still meaningful. In other words, reactive to the point where it will be reversed when these when these holes are filled. Versus, you know, it now if it, it, you know, is there some sort of almost. I want to say permanent, as not that you'll always be um, crippled in some way, but you know, some kind of lasting damage. I think in most people it'll be the, the former, um, you know. But it it is um, it, it's an extreme stress test, as you say. And um, I mean, the one of the one of the silver linings is that is was the real. Um, uh, refinement and, and expansion of telepsychiatry right. it really has helped a lot of people. Mm. And that's, um, you know, one of the many, I think, things that are going to persist. I mean, they've always been important for people in more rural areas. Um, but um, so that will, that has helped and will continue to help. But uh, listen, we are, I really, I don't sound like Pollyanna, but I really think within three months, you know, most people will have what the, you know might be considered an almost normal life. Well, um, isn't there also the likelihood of a kind of collective giddiness? I mean, we're going to be splurging money. I mean, if you if you look at what happened after the nineteen eighteen flu, uh, you had the roar. You had like a burst of hedonism of 
of socialization, of crazy dancing, of 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 drinking, of there was, a, in other words, there was a sort of uh, equal and opposite reaction to the peer. But there's also, weirdly, psychologically, I sense uh, almost an attachment to what we've become used to now. You know, the, the people don't like change, and they're soon going to be asked to get back to everything. And it's going to be, I think, psychologically a challenge to 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 return from this. I, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't know about that. I I tend to think that I I'm always amazed at how quickly people can um, mm-hmm. adapt. Mm-hmm. Um, but I suspect, like for most things, you know, there will be the segment of people who've just like a, you know, just like a duck that just goes off swimming again. Um, but I and think then it, the people I think who it's... are really been ravaged and or, or dislocated and and I don't think we. Regardless of the specific attempt to correct for the specific impact of of COVID nineteen, I can't imagine any other context in which, given the amount of debt we now have, that we would be we've just passed two trillion dollars worth, uh, which is an, an incredibly huge amount of money to pump into our society. And I, 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 I can't help but think of that as a psychological need to move on from this and to make sure we don't go back to it. There's something uh, you're you're able to contemplate bigger changes. Bigger shifts now because we just went through such a, a, a terrible experience. I mean, that's is that. I mean, I my own associations are, for example, how we came out of the AIDS epidemic uh, as gay people, and instead of being completely crushed by it, even though we were, of course, devastated by it, but we definitely subsequently experienced a huge amount of energy and activism and change, uh, partly because we wanted to make sense and meaning of what we had just experienced. Well, we'll know soon enough. I mean, I do think that there, I think, my prediction is probably as good as, frankly, the next person, but is that, um, you know, there will be a general, uh, on balance, a general optimism and and, and energy and... Um, He's hoping. Yeah. I'm not, I don't feel it right now. I, I just, I'm so pissed off at not being able to get a vaccine. But I know that's just a question of patience. But it's funny how after you've been patient for so long, it gets, it gets so much worse at the very end when you can't mm-hmm. quite get there. It's just disappearing in front of your, in front of your grasp. Um, but um, well, on that very optimistic note, Sally, <laughs> I just want to thank you. Thank you for doing the work you do. I'm mean, going there. Into place, were places where, and not just as a tourist, but to actually be there for a year and to absorb the reality is something that so many of us don't do, and so many of us are are you know in our bubbles, and it's hard for us to get into the head of someone in such a situation. For example, who's also enthusiastic about Trump or or other things that we find completely baffling, um, to understand where they're coming from. Yeah, you guys. Thank you. Well, speaking on uh, ending on an optimistic note, I'm, I've just been talking to folks who um, are in Ironton and and that, you know, it, they've been hit hard for sure. There are more overdoses, um, as you say, um, that that is that's people who respond to distress with drugs will respond even more intensely. And there are more people who are distressed. And when drugs are around, that's a, that's and there are people around them using that that that's a big risk and there are more overdoses and that's a problem. But um, uh, most of them were quite optimistic that, again, once we're vaccinated, 
um, things will even down there will start opening up. And I did meet uh, a cohort of of just of absolutely wonderful people who were so dedicated to to the town and uh, so dedicated to their neighbors. And while the the formal churches are um, are con- constricting, and I became very very close with a, a woman who was an Episcopal priest. And um, she says that their her parish is just really shrinking. But the non-denominal churches, which catered often to people with the drug problems, have been attracted to them. And I think one of them is run by someone who had a, a drug problem in the past, are thriving. And um, and that was that was um, you know an ex- extremely uh, uplifting and encouraging. Um, yeah, I sign. see. I mean, I think of AA and I think of uh, uh, all sorts of 12-step uh, programs to be, uh, it, yeah, I mean, it's controversial to say this, but effectively religious in as much as getting a real grip on your powerlessness in so many ways and one's insignificance in the grand scheme of things through giving up one's own attempt to control everything oneself and giving some to to the higher power or to God is actually incredibly effective way of of people functioning in society. And in fact, has been probably, in, in my view, is through evolutionary uh, biology and psychology also rendered humans' ability to cope with stress, that religion really was an incredibly potent part of that uh, solution. Because it's the things you couldn't explain, the injustices that could never be put right, that you were able to somehow n- not completely obsess over or internalize. You were able to let go and let something else beyond you take control. An incredibly liberating experience. And religion used to do that. America, of all places, has had these religious revivals all over the place. Um, and I sometimes think, I've said this before on this broadcast, that, uh, that when I look at some churches now, I think there's more Christianity going on in the basement on a Tuesday night than upstairs on a Sunday morning. The, the, the Christianity is being reinvented in some ways. And I say Christianity because Jesus is not involved in this, but it is essentially Christianity. Um, and again, also, the ability for the person who has been trapped in the cycle to take responsibility for themselves. To, there's the marvelous part of the 12 steps where you go out and you make amends. You mm-hmm. take responsibility. You, you accept your own agency um, in, in which you repair, you actively repair the damage that you did. Um, yes. And people want to do that. Of course. And, and that's where there's so much talk about how, how corrosive shame is. And we really have to think about shame in two ways. Uh, it is corrosive if, if I humiliate you and you feel useless and degraded. But shame can also be highly motivating if applied the right way. But it has to be applied while a person is also given a sense that he or she is effective and can and can change and can make those amends. But that, that's often part of the, the change process or the improvement process. But um, uh, again, shame to, to, to um, make someone feel bad about themselves is, is not at all constructive and can actually, as, as you might imagine, um, intensify the desire to use more drugs because you want to blot that out, that feeling of humiliation. and and um, uh, but, but if it's in the context of 
you usually telling me, I don't have to tell you you did something wrong. Abandoning your kids is something you're mortified about. Well, how are we going to repair that? I'm going to help you. That's that's a very constructive scenario. It's not, it's, it's, you know, it's not so much shame. It's ownership of your own actions, uh, understanding your own agency and your own potential to change and to help others, which is, can seem kind of hopeless when you're trapped in these these conditions and depression has set in um and you know you're talking about depression i'm talking about addiction well yeah i'm sorry (laughs) addiction too though i do i think they're obviously related uh and connected yeah but i think i do think telling people with substance abuse problems that they can't do anything about it that it's some sort of force that's overwhelming them um it's the fault of the drug companies or various people for doing it may contain elements of truth but it doesn't contain many elements of 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 rectification or of or of self uh salvation and and you're so much more empowered when you do it in part with help but by yourself and you take that as your own personal achievement to have done that and i've seen i've seen so many people endure and come back from unbelievable difficulties through that expression and it's a mixture weirdly of giving up power to the higher power and yet taking control of one's own ability and ownership of one's past decisions and mistakes Um, that's why it can take up to five years someone you know some experts will say recovery and i'm putting quotes around it just because it's a a, a bit of an amorphous but that does take you couldn't possibly be truly recovered within a year, that it could take up to five years. I imagine for some it takes even longer, maybe a little shorter in some. But the point is, as you say, it's it's a, you know, it's a massive, um, it's, a, it's a major enterprise. And it's not something that someone, you know, hands you some methadone and you're done. That's absurd. It's a big human, personal human project. And I, and I have to say, collectively, we also have the same problem. We have cr- constructed a society where people are unhappy and are in some ways right to be unhappy. They've, they've, they're not getting what humans need to be happy and to have fulfilling lives. Um, and that may require really significant social change. Well, on that hopeful note, Sally, I just want to thank you for coming in and for being the person you are and for being a good friend and and also for, for what you've done. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks to the readers. I'm readers. Readers and listeners. I always think of you as, as readers, but no, you're listeners now as well. Um, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>